How are you all doing? Well, if you're new here, my name is Jeremy Alford. I'm the family pastor here. Um, I've been the family pastor here for about five years, which means that uh, I just oversee the efforts to take care of and minister to the children and youth uh, and to the parents of the children and youth. Uh, This morning, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 5. So if you want to go ahead and turn there, it's on page 533 of the chair Bible. 533. As you're getting there, with a show of hands, uh, how many of you are into true crime podcasts? Like, don't, don't be embarrassed. There's a few. Not as many as I thought, but okay. There's a few. Uh, my wife, she loves true crime podcasts. Uh, it all started with the podcast Serial, uh, but now there's Crime Junkies and Criminal, Sword and Scale. They're, they're, they're everywhere. I listen to them sometimes, but if I'm really going to get hooked by something, um, chances are it's one of those TV shows, uh, those docu-series like Making a Murderer or The Staircase. Uh, I can get pretty addicted to those. Um, I like them because they show the work of the detectives out in the field, and that's interesting to me. Um, and they, they also show you what it's like to be inside of a courtroom. And I thought that cameras weren't allowed inside of a courtroom, um, but apparently that's not completely true. Um, But it seems to me, from my uneducated point of view, uh, that there are three major parts of a court trial, right? And so I looked it up, and there are indeed three major parts. There's the opening statement, the testimonies, and then the closing arguments, right? So the opening statement, this is where the attorneys begin to lay out their argument, kind of give this big picture idea of what they believe to be true and how they plan to prove it. And then they move into testimonies and evidence and cross-examination and bringing in these expert witnesses. And, and then lastly, there's the closing arguments. And this is when the attorneys, uh, they try to persuade the jurors in one direction or the other as they make an appeal for innocent or guilty. Well, what we have here in Isaiah chapter 5 is we have Isaiah's closing arguments against God's people. Even though this is one of the first chapters of the book, Isaiah has already opened up with his opening statement. He's already laid out the evidence against Israel and Judah and Jerusalem. And now in his closing remarks, he's allowing the weight of it all to fall upon their shoulders as he declares God's verdict to them as he says, you are guilty. It's an open and shut case. The verdict must be that they are guilty before an almighty God. The people have been showered with God's blessings historically. There's the promises to Abraham, the exodus under Moses, the manna in the desert, the conquest of the promised land under Joshua, the the joy of eating harvest that they did not plant and living in homes that they did not build, the patience of God with them during the rebellions under the judges, the gift of leadership by King David, the repeated warnings and encouragements from the prophets. The people have been showered with blessings, and yet Israel has responded with a shameful pattern of sin for generations. You could say that they have received God's grace in vain. So here's the reality of Isaiah chapter 5. Wherever God plants His grace, He expects a harvest of righteousness. Let me say that again because that is 
that is the deep-rooted reality of this chapter. Wherever God plants His grace, He expects a harvest of righteousness. And whenever He finds a crop of unrighteousness, the people must either repent or come under His discipline. And so church, if the fruit of our lives has become rancid and undesirable, then we too must repent or we will come under God's discipline because his patience will eventually run dry. He has a clear expectation that his people must be fruitful. And this is the heart of Isaiah's closing arguments in chapter 5. But oddly enough, he's going to start with a song. He starts with a love song to his beloved, which is God. And this is strange because love songs are supposed to be pleasant and they're supposed to bring about good and positive emotions. But this is the closing arguments against Judah, right? Like this is not going to be pleasant. Sometimes truth has to be received in the heart first. And music can be a Trojan horse so to speak. It has a nice melody, a good rhythm, a good beat, which allows truths hidden in the music to bypass your mind and to enter into your heart directly. This is why a lot of people will sing what they believe before they ever even actually know what they believe or understand it. There was a Scottish politician in the 1600s named Andrew Fletcher who once said, if a man were permitted to make all of the ballads, he need not care who should make the laws of a nation. More modern take on this idea comes from Jimi Hendrix. <clears throat> I'm quoting Jimi Hendrix in a sermon. He said, if there is something to be changed in this world, it can happen only through music. While I don't believe that to be entirely true, no doubt music is very powerful. Sometimes we hear a direct word and we absolutely refuse to believe it and then later on we hear those exact same words said artistically and it changes us. We see this with King David and the prophet Nathan. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, Nathan confronts David but he doesn't just go up to him and say, hey man, I know what you did. I know that you committed adultery with Bathsheba. Now, maybe he wasn't direct with King David because that would have gotten him killed. Or maybe he wasn't direct because he knew that David would not have been able to receive direct words. And so instead, he uses the arts and he tells him a story about two men, a rich man and a poor man. The rich man had many flocks and herds, but the poor man had only one lamb, and that one lamb would sit on his lap and he would take care of it as if it were his own daughter. And then a traveler comes by and the rich man refuses to slaughter his own lamb and prepare it for food. And instead he has the one lamb of the poor man prepared for food. And this story makes David so mad that he yells at Nathan and he says, this rich man deserves to die. And then the plot twists, right? Because then Nathan says, you are that man. Sometimes we hear a direct word and we refuse to believe it. And then later we hear those same words artistically and it changes us. 
And so Isaiah aims this very difficult truth at the heart by singing a love song. Let's start with verse 1 of chapter 5. It says, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a vine it a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. What we see here is God is taking great care of his people. He has lavished his grace upon them. He has chosen a location for them. He has invested hard labor on their behalf. There has been skillful gardening. There is protection in the form of a watchtower. God has done all of this with the expectation that his people will produce a harvest of righteousness. Now these folks, they would have grown up in an agricultural society where they would have understood exactly what Isaiah is saying. Like, of course, of course, Isaiah, the owner of the vineyard, is expecting good fruit. He put in all the time, he put in the effort, he set the conditions perfectly. Why wouldn't the vineyard produce? Which is why Isaiah then poses this question in verse 3. He says, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Basically, he's saying, what else could I possibly do? God has taken care of his people perfectly. They are completely and totally set up for success. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not already done? Right, we know the answer. We know there is nothing more that God could have done. There should have been a great harvest. There should have been sweet fruit. The blame is not to be placed on the owner of the vineyard. He's done everything that needed to be done. Right, remember, this is Isaiah's closing argument against God's people. And so he's making his appeal. He's saying, God is innocent. You are guilty. You have had every opportunity. You were well taken care of. There's no way that God is guilty here. You are guilty. And so now the owner says in verse 5, Now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. Right? I can just imagine that the original audience of this word, they're just like, yeah, they're just shaking their head in agreement. Yeah, man, yeah, that's absolutely. I mean, what, what else could you have done? Yeah, it's time. Just let it go, man. Like, that's, that's the advice, right? Just walk away. Let it be devoured. You did what you could do. It's on them. Just walk away. And then there's this, you are the man moment. You are that man, right? Verse 7 says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. You are that man. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Isaiah is saying very clearly, My beloved's vineyard is you. Now we lose a little bit of the sting here because it's been translated to English, but 
Isaiah is doing a little bit of slam poetry here. There's like a little bit of spoken word in the Hebrew. Because he says there, I looked for justice, I looked for mishpat, but behold, bloodshed, mishpah. He says, I looked for righteousness, say daqwa, but behold, an outcry, say aqua. Right? So Isaiah is speaking very poetically here as to bypass the mind and allow this truth to hit them in their soul. He wants them to feel it, just like Nathan, you are that man. He wants them to feel it. Israel, you are the vineyard. Even though there is only one letter difference between justice and bloodshed, even though there is only one letter difference between righteousness and an outcry, even though they are so similar, the difference between those words is as vast as what God wanted to find in his vineyard versus what he actually found in his vineyard. God chose Israel. God brought them into the promised land. He planted them in fertile ground and he took great care of them. He protected them. He watched over them. He watered them and caused the sun to shine upon them. And in return, he expected the fruit of justice and righteousness. He expects his people to be faithful and true to his word. He expects his people to be different. He expects us to be holy and set apart from the rest of the world. But that just wasn't the case. The vineyard was rotten. And so the Lord draws close to them in judgment. Man, church, God is expecting the same fruit of righteousness in us. And where he finds unrighteous living, we better repent or expect his discipline because God will not tolerate an unproductive vineyard. As I was studying for this sermon, I came across this story about Frederick Douglass. Uh, he was born in the early 1800s as a slave in Maryland. And thankfully, he escaped and became a leading voice against slavery. He was a great orator, and he wrote many books, including an autobiography. And in his book, uh, Douglas talks about uh, his slave master going to a revival meeting, right? One of those old tent meetings that the church used to be pretty popular for. His slave master had some kind of a religious encounter. Basically, what Douglas is saying is that his slave master had a personal revival. Douglas then hears about what happened to his slave master and how he was converted, and he begins to hope that it would lead him to emancipate his slaves. And if he didn't do that, maybe, just maybe, it would make him more kind and humane. Later on, Douglas wrote these words in his autobiography about his former slave master's conversion. He said, if it had any effect on his character, it made him more cruel and hateful in all his ways. For I believe him to have been a much worse man after his conversion than before. Let me read that again. I believe him to have been a much worse man after his conversion than before. 
He then says, prior to his conversion, he relied upon his own depravity to shield and sustain him in his savage barbarity. But after his conversion, he found religious sanction and support for his slaveholding cruelty. Man, the work had been done. The vineyard had been taken care of. There should have been sweet fruit. But instead, there was a horrible harvest. So in sticking with the parable of the vineyard, Isaiah gives us six different clusters of bad grapes. And he introduces these six fruits, or these six clusters, with the word woe. Woe is a word of lament in the prophets, and Isaiah is lamenting what he finds in God's people. We find the first word there in verse 8. It says, Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field, until there is no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. And so the first cluster is aggressive greed aggressive greed. In Leviticus chapter 25, God speaks to Moses directly, and he tells him that the land that they will inherit is not theirs, that it belongs to the Lord. And God calls them aliens and tenants on his land, which means that this is merely a stewardship because God's people never owned the land in the first place. God set it up in such a way that if the people were to ever get into trouble, and lose the land that it would return to their family as quickly as possible. And that was God's grace to them. His plan was to take care of them, even if they got into trouble. One commentator says that these truths in Leviticus were no longer held as law, but were instead just ideals. They were no longer enforced. They were simply thought of as, that's a pretty good idea. I mean, when God's law turns into nothing more than just a good idea, church, we are in trouble. This mentality allowed God's people to kick the poor and needy off their land. This mentality allowed God's people to ruthlessly take the property of the less fortunate. But see, the problem here, wealth is not the actual problem. There are wealthy people in the kingdom. The problem is when we begin to have an unhealthy desire for wealth. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 18, Paul says, They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Now clearly we know that God is opposed to us gaining wealth by unrighteous means. Right? So if you're wealthy and it wasn't because of greed or injustice or or selfishness, God is not displeased with you, but you are in danger because God now has an expectation that you will steward your finances well. God has an expectation that you will be rich in good works, and good works have a way of draining the bank account. Good works have a way of hurting the wallet, but nonetheless, he expects you to be generous and ready to share if you're wealthy and i would say the majority of people in this room should consider themselves wealthy even though we're not 
Elon Musk or, or Jeff Bezos, we should consider ourselves wealthy. And if you've gained your wealth in an appropriate manner, but you're not aiming to do good with your money, you're not aiming to be generous and ready to share and be rich in good works, then God is not pleased with you. These folks in Isaiah 5, they weren't living that way. They were these great empire builders, building nations, and they showed no compassion to the poor and needy and instead bullied them off of their land. And so Isaiah says in verse 9, where you caused others to experience poverty, you yourself will now experience it too. He says there, the Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitants. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath, and an omer of seed shall yield but an epa. And so the first cluster is aggressive greed. The second cluster is sinful excess and self-indulgence. Sinful excess and self-indulgence. Verses 11 and 12 say, Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute, and wine at their feasts. But they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. These people lived for sensual pleasures rather than God. One pastor said they had become a combination of Las Vegas and New York City. It's a sin city that never sleeps. And they were going crazy. Indulgence, indulgence, indulgence. Party, party, party. Excess, excess, excess. They had completely given up self-control and caved to their inner desires for pleasure. And because of this, they had lost their spiritual sensitivity. The end of verse 12 says, They do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of His hands. When you abandon self-control and when you give in to sinful hedonism, it's not just a night of fun. It's actually blurring your spiritual vision. Right? If you've ever had to wear those drunken goggles in health class or driver's ed, or if you've ever been intoxicated, you know that you can't see straight. And our sin does that with our spiritual perception. They're supposed to be feasting and enjoying the provision and bounty of the Lord, but instead... They're, they're using these instruments as a means for their own self-indulgence. The lyre, harp, tambourine, and flute are mentioned in Psalm 150 as instruments that we should be bringing in our worship of the Lord. But instead, the Israelites are using them as a means to just keep the party going. Spiritual perception had become spiritual misperception. They took feasting and enjoying the Lord and perverted it into revelry. And so Isaiah gives a word of judgment in verses 13 and 14. He says, Therefore my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry and their multitude is parched with thirst. 
Therefore, Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure. And the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down, her, reveler, her revelers and he who exalts in her. Man, they had indulged themselves, but they could never get full because that lifestyle will never satisfy. And now the judgment is death. Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth. Death's appetite will never cease. And verse 13 tells us that they pursued pleasure regardless of the cost because they lacked knowledge of God. Now this is not saying that they didn't know about God. Right? These were orthodox people. They celebrated the feasts. They kept the law. What God is saying is that they didn't have a personal knowledge of Him. They hadn't experienced God in a way that transformed their lives and changed their behaviors. It's like saying, I know Patrick Mahomes because I watch him on Sundays and I can rattle off some of his career stats and I know where he went to school and I know a little bit about his family. I know things about Mahomes, but I don't really know the guy. Right? At this point in their history, the Israelites knew things about God, but they didn't really know the guy. And because of that, he's sending them away into exile so they can learn about him, so they can have a life-giving experience with him. Man, nothing causes a person to confront their true self quite like suffering. And so God made them suffer in order that they might know him and love him. They didn't know God. Because of that, they exalted themselves. They exalted themselves, and because of that, they went into exile. Then verse 15 says that man is humbled, and each one is brought low, and the eyes of the haughty are brought low, but the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. He says, you have lifted yourself up, and now I will tear you down, and you will see me as the exalted one. He says, you have exalted injustice in my land, and now I will show you holiness by executing justice. And it's at this point that I'm like, Whew. Whoa. This is hard. It's hard to sit under the word of the Lord, is it not? It's difficult for this to not just be about the Israelites, but for this to be about me. It's really hard to be humble. I know that my instinct is to check out mentally. My instinct is to get out from underneath the weight of this text as quickly as possible. And so what I want to do is I just want to pause, I want to take a breath, and I want to pray before we continue. Let's do that. God, sometimes your word is just so difficult. And I don't want to receive it. So God, I pray that you will help all of us in this room to sit under your word and to hear what you have to say to us. 
It's in your name we pray. The third cluster here is in verses 18 and 19. It says, Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes, who say, Let him be quick. Let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and let it come that we may know it. Our arrogant pursuit of sin leads us into mocking God. Sin ruins us. It ruins us. We flirt with sin because it seems appealing and fun. And then suddenly, bam, sin has a hold of us. Sin put its yoke on our back. In just an instant, we become the ox and sin becomes our master. And we arrogantly pursue sin thinking we can master it. Then we find that we are enslaved to sin. And because of that, we mock God, we question Him, we challenge Him and defy Him. Because we are enslaved to some secret sin, we arrogantly demand that God carry out our plans on our timetable. Church, how often do we think we can play with sin and not come underneath its yoke? So often we give ourselves over to sin and we begin to mock God as if he's not going to do anything to stop us. A few weeks ago, I was over at my parents' house having taco soup. <laughs> they make really good taco soup. My youngest daughter, uh, she was there sitting on my lap and she started banging her spoon on the table. I told her, you know, if you bang that spoon on the table one more time, you're going to lose your spoon. Now, I can't quite remember if she turned around and looked me in the eyes or if she just did it. But man, bam, bam, she's banging the spoon on the table. Now, I don't really have an option, right? I have to take the spoon. And so that's what I did. I took the spoon. I told her, there would be consequences if she did it again. And she did it again. So no spoon for you. You see, she was testing me in that moment. She didn't know, she doesn't know how to talk. But she was saying, Dad, are you really going to do what you said you would do? Dad, are you really going to discipline me? Dad, are there, are there really consequences for my actions? Man, we do the exact same thing with God, don't we? God, I've been banging this spoon on the table for quite a while now, and you seem like you're okay with it. You still haven't taken it away, right? God, I've been, I've been flirting with this sin for quite a while, and you just don't seem to mind too much. Like over and over, we choose disobedience and unrighteousness and without us ever even knowing it, our deceitful hearts whisper, God's not going to hold me accountable. So we mock God. We scoff at him as we think he's just not going to do anything about it. After all, I'm still going to heaven. So I think I'm fine. I'll just keep banging the spoon. Our arrogance leads us to mock God, which then leads to the fourth cluster 
in that we justify our sin. He says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. These folks were using sophisticated theological arguments to justify their sin. Now, a lot of us are familiar with the ancient Christian crusades, but if you're not, the crusades were a religious war that were initiated by and supported by the Latin church during the years primarily of 1095 to 1291. During this time, the Latin church intended to recover the city of Jerusalem from under Islamic rule. And there were millions upon millions of deaths primarily for one of two reasons. First, the Pope was telling them to go and conquer Jerusalem, and in reward, he said, I will forgive your sins. And so they were killing these Islamic people because the Pope said, I will forgive you of your sins. The second reason is that they thought that a sacred space still existed. They thought that Muslims had taken, taken over sacred land, and in order to better worship God, they had to go and take back Jerusalem. They had little to no understanding of John chapter 4, in which Jesus talks to the woman at the well and tells her, there is not a sacred space anymore, but you are to worship me in spirit and in truth. Now, nearly a thousand years later, we have a little bit of a better grasp on the idea that the Pope does not have authority to forgive sins. That authority lies with Jesus Christ alone. We have a little bit of a better grasp, not a perfect grasp, but we have a better grasp on the idea of worshiping in spirit and in truth. But both of these reasons are sophisticated theological arguments to justify sin. We can become so twisted in our thinking that we truly believe that we can work our way around what God has said is evil and we can call it good. It is possible for you and I to call darkness light and to believe it. It is possible for me to call something sweet bitter. This happened with the ancient Crusades. It happened again to the German church during the Holocaust as they succumbed to serving the, the brutal Nazi regime. It happened again to the Southern American church as they thought themselves to be superior because of the color of their skin. Church, it is so, so easy to justify sin. We can do it without even thinking about it. We can do it without even knowing that we're doing it. Even the most horrendous of sins, we can easily justify. There's a quote in our hallway about this very thing that says, what the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. What the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies justifies we are so twisted in our minds and in our hearts how how often have you heard somebody say only god can judge me you can't judge me only god can judge me which in reality is them saying please be quiet because i would like to sin in peace and i don't want to be held accountable isaiah says woe to those who call evil good 
and good evil. And then the fifth cluster is connected to the fourth as Isaiah just keeps building momentum as he's giving his closing arguments. The fifth cluster is selfish conceit. Selfish conceit that allows us to justify our sin. The fifth cluster is giving life to the fourth. Selfish conceit is allowing us to justify our sin. We think we know what is right. I think I know what is right. And verse 21 says, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. So way back in the Garden of Eden, Eve thought that the fruit of the, of the tree would make her wise. She thought it would make her wise, and so she ate it. But this kind of wisdom is rooted in, in self-worship and selfish conceit. In the same way the Israelites of Isaiah's day, they were pretty impressed with themselves. They were advancing, they were becoming a strong nation, they, they thought very highly of themselves, which gave them permission to do whatever they wanted to do. In modern terms, we would say they were entitled. They must have thought, we're God's chosen nation, and that makes me special. And we all know that special people have special privileges. And so they had become very selfish in their thinking. They thought much too highly of themselves. And then the sixth cluster is what happens as all of this continues to build because the Israelites have become conceited, which led, which led to justifying sin, which led to no real understanding of justice, which leads to the sixth cluster, which is societal injustice. If we are willing to twist the word of God and the ways of God for our own purposes and for our own glory, then the only thing that it could possibly produce is a drunken and corrupt justice system. He says in verse 22 that these people were heroes at drinking wine. Right? They're receiving war awards for drinking. They're passing around the bottle so that they can be acquitted of some kind of charge and all the while the innocent are crying out because of the injustice that's being done to them. Verse 22 says, Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Just as they had rushed to their sin, judgment is going to rush to them. God is going to consume them. And then Isaiah makes his final appeal for his closing argument there at the end of verse 24. He says, For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Church, that's the real problem. They rejected God. They despised His word. And they turned their back to Him. These folks had mocked God. They decided that they wanted to follow their own path. And in language that just picks up speed and pace, Isaiah lets them know how quick judgment is coming for them. 
I'm going to read from verse 24 to the end of the chapter, but it's not going to be on the screen behind me because I just want you to listen to it. I just want you to feel the rhythm of this. It says, Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble, and as dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their roots will be as rottenness, and their blossom go up like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them. And the mountains quaked, and the corpses were as refuse. In the midst of their streets, for all this, for all this his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. He will raise a signal for nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth. And behold, quickly, speedily they come. None is weary. None stumbles. None slumbers or sleeps. Not a waistband is loose. Not a sandal strap broken. Their arrows are sharp. All their bows bent. Their horses' hooves seem like flint and their wheels like the whirlwind. Their roaring is like a lion. Like young lions, they roar. They growl and seize their prey. They carry it off, and none can rescue. They will growl over it on that day like the growling of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress, and the light is darkened by its clouds. Can you feel that? Isaiah is not trying to simply communicate with your mind. He wants to speak to your heart. He's trying to tell you in your innermost being that you urgently need to repent because judgment is coming. They had mocked God, but they forgot who they were dealing with. You see, during that time, they believed in many false gods. And these false gods had boundaries. And so if I'm over here and I mess with a false god, then all I have to do to escape the judgment of that false god is come over here. Because that false god has boundaries. And he can't touch me when I'm over here. And Isaiah is letting them know that the Lord God of Israel, he's not like that. He's sovereign over all things, and there is no nation powerful enough to withstand his will. And when he calls, they answer. All nations bow to his will. All nations everywhere bow to the sovereign God as he carries out his own plans and purposes. And in verse 26, Isaiah tells them that God is going to give a signal He's going to whistle, and like an obedient puppy, these nations will come from far away, and they will devour Israel. And that's just how the chapter ends. There is a word of judgment, and then nothing else. Isaiah doesn't offer up any hope. There is no final word of hope. I believe that's because these heavy words are meant to cause serious self-reflection. I think he wants us to sit in the darkness for a little while and do some soul-searching. What is my life producing? 
God is expecting a harvest of righteousness. And when he sees the fruit of my life, is he pleased? Isaiah 5 and the whole experience of Israel in the Old Covenant is a warning to the new church, to the church in the New Covenant. We have been given far greater privileges through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, have we not? Far greater privileges than Israel ever experienced. And this chapter stands as a warning to us still today to not take lightly the blessings of the Christian faith that have surrounded us for literally our entire lives. Just like the vineyard, God is taking great care of his people still today. He lavishes his grace upon us. He invests hard labor for our benefit. There has been skillful gardening and protection is still being offered. And make no mistake about it, no other church has ever had as many spiritual advantages as the church in America. We have Bibles in various translations. We have the audio Bible in as many translations as you can think of. There are good seminaries teaching the truths of God's Word. There are Christian publishers and book distributors. There's thousands of internet resources. Good preaching is available to listen to whenever you want. There are godly role models. There are men and women who openly live for Christ. There is opportunity upon opportunity to serve the Lord, both right here in this church and in short-term missions and long-term missions. There are many good Bible-believing churches in America. We are truly blessed. And yet, as we sit underneath the avalanche of God's grace, there just seems to be so little fruit produced here. Church, we have to be warned. I personally must be warned to not receive the grace of God in vain, but to instead live a life that displays God's holiness and glory to an American culture that is rapidly decaying. I want to finish with a story. Then we'll go into a time of reflection. So not too long ago, I went to Walmart, pick up some groceries. I was trying to spend 20 bucks, spent 150 bucks. So it was after some apples. My wife really likes honey crisp apples. They're not the best, but that's what she likes. <clears throat> so I look at the crate of apples. And I pick out the three best looking apples that I can find. Right? And I didn't simply just do an eye test either, right? Like I, I picked up these apples. I looked at them. I felt them. Are there any soft spots? And then a couple days later, she tells me that one of these apples just wasn't really that good just didn't taste very good. It's so silly. The apple promised me something. <laughs> it's so silly. That apple promised me something. It was supposed to be sweet and crisp and juicy and exploding with flavor. But instead, it presented itself as something that it was not. Now let me twist this. How many of our lives are like that apple? 
We are supposed to be exploding with the gospel. We're supposed to be the light and life of this world. Is that who we are? I mean, we come to church because that's where good apples seem to be. And we volunteer. We serve on ministry teams. We hang out with the other good apples. But am I rotten? Am I the bad apple? Right? I don't, I don't want you to think about somebody else in this moment. Oh man, they're the bad apple. No. Am, am I? Like legitimately. A, am I the bad apple? Church, do not be too quick to get out from underneath the weight of this text. We have to ask ourselves what kind of fruit is coming out of our lives. Is it rotten? Or is there a harvest of righteousness? So we have to ask ourselves, do any of these six clusters, do they describe me? Do I justify my sin? Am I living in sinful excess? But then here's the real question. Jason, you can come on up. Here's the real question, the one that we... We're all very quick to answer. We're very quick to answer it. But perhaps we need to slow down and just ask ourselves a bit more seriously. Am I rejecting God? When's the last time that I consistently, right, consistently read His Word and prayed to Him and interacted with Him? Right? We would never turn our backs to God in something major. A life crisis hits and I'm all about you, Lord. But are we showing him our backs in the small parts of our day? In just that daily routine that we do without thinking? You see, later in Isaiah chapter 64, he says that our righteousness is like filthy rags. Which means that life, that without a life-giving personal relationship with Jesus that our church attendance, our Bible studies, our personal quiet time is like a filthy rag. And that's because only Jesus can produce righteousness within you. Only Jesus can get rid of your rotten heart. So church, during our time of reflection, We need to ask ourselves, and what kind of fruit is coming out of my life? I think we just need to sit under this text. So let's do a little soul searching. Let's ask God to reveal where we need to confess and repent. And then I'll pray for us.